I'm going to invite you to stand with me as they're going down. If you if you're here today and you have some type of a sickness in your body, would you just raise your hand? Something that you feel like shouldn't be there. It's abnormal, whether it's a headache or a backache or a, some type of a condition, a disease, whatever it is. Why don't you just raise your hand? We're not going to ask you to do anything crazy or take off your shoes or anything like that. But I, I want to know these things, and it's good because we're going to pray for these, and it's good for us to know who and what it is that we're praying for. Amen. Why don't we take these needs right now to the Lord? Jesus, God, you are the healer of all. Jesus, we express our faith and our trust in you right now, God, through this prayer. In the name of Jesus, I take authority over infirmities and sickness in Jesus' name. God, I speak wholeness and healing over every body, over every hand that was raised today. Jesus, we call on you because we know that you are the healer. We know that you have all power, Lord Jesus. God, in your name, I, I speak wholeness. I declare it right now in Jesus' name. God, I speak to the infirmity and cast it out right now. In the name of Jesus. I thank you for it, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. Why don't you give him thanks right now for healing us, for being the healer. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Glory to God. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen. You can be seated. I'm going to do some reading from the book of Second Chronicles. So if you've got a Bible, feel free to go ahead and turn there. Second Chronicles chapter 28. I want to say, Brother Nelson, it's great to have your mother with us today. Very good to meet you and have you here with us. All of our guests, we're thrilled that you're here. Second Chronicles chapter 28. I'm going to talk about some kings today. Some of them are kings that I've never talked about. I'll be forthright with you and, and admit that. I've never preached about Ahaz or any of the descendants of his that we're going to talk about today. Um, but the Lord has showed me some things about this group of kings that I hope we can kind of just learn from and, and see who were they? What did they do? And what was the significance of the things that took place through these lives? Um, just to kind of give you a quick background of the historical time frame of where we're talking about here. If we go all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, and I won't walk you all the way through annually, but if you start there and you know that they had children and descendants and then the earth began to be populated, and then you find yourselves down a few hundred years to the time of a man named Noah, and there was the flood on the earth, right? And through that flood, God wiped off every person except for Noah and his family. So it was a new beginning of sorts, 
And then through that process of time, out of them, there's a descendant by the name of Abraham. And through Abraham, God makes a promise that I will make you a great nation. I'm going to give you so many children, so many offspring that you won't even be able to number them all. And through that, if you just stop and think for a minute where that part of everything happened in in time, you would realize, okay, well, there was already from Noah and his family these other groups of people, I guess you could call them, or these other, um, I want to use the word colonies, but it's, you know, these groups of people that some are set up in this country, some are set up in this country. And so we see Abraham and his family, Uh, We know that he has the son Isaac, right? And Isaac has the son Jacob. And through Jacob, he has 12 descendants, and his name is later changed to Israel. That's who the Israelites are. There are these descendants of Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. Okay? And so God tells Abraham, and then he reaffirms this to each of these descendants, you are my chosen people. I make a covenant with you or an agreement, a a relationship with you that is not like the relationship that I have with all those other groups of people. They are his chosen people. Okay, and so they set up uh, in the country, in their region, there is uh, the country of Israel that's established. And in Israel, they first have no king. They have just a prophet uh, men of God that are rulers over the nation of Israel, starting with these descendants like Jacob and then so on and so forth, ruling over that group of people. In that nation, eventually they decide we want to be like all the other nations. They get to have a king. And that seems pretty neat, and he's doing his job, and we don't have anybody in that position of our nation. So, Lord, give us somebody in that position for our nation. And so we know that he, he raises up a king by the name of Saul. Saul is the first king of the nation of Israel. And without dwelling on it too long, things don't go quite as planned or as hoped for for Saul, and God removes him from king and replaces him with a man by the name of David. So that's King David. If you also think about, especially this time of year, we start to hear songs about the birth of Jesus Christ and how much of that is related to his heritage or his lineage or born of David, right? This is King David who is in the bloodline or in the lineage and the heritage of Jesus Christ. It's very interesting if you stop and think about how that happened because it was through Joseph, his father, his earthly father, who was out of the bloodline of David. Okay, but so we're going to stop and reverse and go about midway through where David was and then where Joseph, the man, uh, the father of Jesus was. So, In this nation of Israel, in their history, they've already had at least 10, I believe, 10 to 15 or so kings between Saul and Ahaz. All right? And so Ahaz, and this is not an uncommon thing for us to see in the themes 
of Israel, do they have a good king or do they have a bad king? Do they have a king that's serving the Lord or do they have a king that's rejecting the Lord? And it's very interesting because we would probably automatically just off the top of our head think, well, they are God's chosen people, so they must have a good king. They must have a good leader because he's their people. But if you think all the way through that time in the wilderness when Moses leads the children of Israel out, they didn't even reach their destination before their sin in in the camp, before their turning away from God. And so we know that this is just because they're human, okay? Because they're human, they don't always have good leaders, good men among them that are in charge. Ahaz, where we're starting here, is one such man who, even though he's king, even though he's out of that bloodline of David, was turned against God. So I'm giving you this backstory. So before we start to read, you can picture who is this we're talking about and what does he do? Why is he significant? So Ahaz, it says, was 20 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, there is the city of David, right? But he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord like David, his father. Verse 2, for he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Notice that it said he didn't do like his father, David, but then it says he walked like the other kings of Israel. So David was not his direct father. It's pointing down through the lineage. So between David and Ahaz, there were some other kings, and Ahaz is more like those other kings than David. He made also molten images for Balaam. Verse 3. Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And if you can read this, you got to have a strong stomach for some of this Old Testament stuff. He burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Verse 4, he sacrificed also and burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Those aren't sacrifices to God, just so we're clear. All right, verse 5. Wherefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria, and they smote him and carried away a great multitude of them captives and brought them to Damascus. And he was also delivered in the hand, that he is Ahaz, this king, delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who smote him, With a great slaughter. Now, let me pause here for a second because I could feel some of us getting confused already. I thought Ahaz was the king of Israel. Remember, at this point, the kingdom of Israel is divided into two. One of them is still called Israel. The other is called Judah. So Ahaz is the king of Judah. Okay? But so he was delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who smote him with a great slaughter. Verse 6 For Pekah, the son of Remaliah, slew in Judah 120,000 in one day. Let that number sink in for a second. This is the, the, the Israelite leader against the Judean, Judah, that's Ahaz and his people, brothers, family, infighting, okay? Slew in one day 120,000 people which were all valiant men. Why? 
because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. As the king went, so went the people. Do you understand? So this 120, just as an example, even though it says they're all valiant men, because they forsook the God of their fathers, because the king forsook the God of their fathers, just in this one day, as an example, 120,000 of them were killed. And they were killed in a war against Israelites, other descendants. They've got their own set of issues. We're not even going there today. We're, still, we're trying to talk about Judah, okay? So in Judah and in this body, in this uh, nation, the king is so evil. The king is so against God and the things of God that God is pouring out his wrath and his judgment by allowing members of this tribe, members of this nation to be killed. That in itself is kind of mind-boggling if you stop and think about, hang on, he was such a bad king that God chose 120,000 of his, chose to let 120,000 of his people get killed. But that's what the word says. Look down to verse 21. For Ahaz took away a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the house of the king and of the princes and gave it unto the king of Assyria. So through this particular time, Syria is kind of the, the number one enemy, the largest and closest neighboring country that always just wants to go in and fight and kill the Israelites, the Judeans. And so what Ahaz does here, because his nation was taken over and fought and, and pretty much beat up by the king of Assyria, Ahaz decides, okay, I'll give him whatever he wants. I'm going to raise these, this, this money, these funds. I'm going to give it to him because he's the king of the country that just beat us. It says, but he helped him not. Keep reading. And in the time of his distress, did he trespass yet more against the Lord? Okay, plain English, that says when things got worse, he got worse. Trespassed more. This is that King Ahaz, verse 23. For he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus, which smote him. And he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, therefore will I sacrifice to them. This guy's already off the deep end, okay? It's not like he was a, a really good guy who was doing things right until all of a sudden Syria comes in and, and no. He was, where we started here, he was already off the deep end, making sacrifices to all these other idols. But so Syria comes in, defeats him and his army and his nation, and he gets the bright idea. They must have the best gods because they came in and beat us. So here's what I'll do. I'll try to start sacrificing to their gods. That they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. Verse 24. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. Now, a lot of what I want us to get here and learn today and see is 
where does the, the house of God and the things of God fit in with all this history stuff that we're seeing and all the, especially this bad history? Ahaz is a king descendant of David, but he's taking things out of the house of God. If you remember, David and his son Solomon built this temple unlike anything that had ever been built before. God even said, okay, I'm going to allow you to build this temple. I'm going to choose to let my presence dwell in that temple. This is built by Solomon, okay? Several uh, descendants or, or several generations before Ahaz. So the, so the temple's already built. God's already in the temple. Some other kings had come and already done other stuff. Well, Ahaz, when it's his turn, he decides, I'm going to desecrate this temple even further. He's taking the, the things of the temple. It says he cuts in pieces the vessels of the house of God and shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made him altars in every corner of Jerusalem. That doesn't mean he made God altars in every corner. Okay? No, he just decides, I'm going to build other altars. Whatever is supposed to be happening here in this temple, it's not happening. It's not working. It's not doing its job. So we're going to step in and try to make things better by tearing down that temple, basically locking it up, and then going and building other altars in other places to other gods. That's Ahaz. Not the, not the best uh, uh, example. One more verse, 25. And in, every se- and in every several city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense unto other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. Thankfully, Ahaz wasn't the king too much longer after this. And he has a son. We're going to talk a little bit about his son. But that's kind of the foot that we're starting off here, okay? The foot that we're starting on is Ahaz. And this evil king who is building other altars to other gods, worshiping other gods, destroying the things of the temple. Look at... Second uh, Chronicles chapter 29. We're going to jump to the next chapter here. Start at verse 1. And we're going to talk about Ahaz's son. Hezekiah. That's his name. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 5 and 20 years old. That's 25 years old. And he reigned 9 and 20 years. 29 years old. In Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah. The daughter of Zechariah. Verse 2. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. According to all that David, his father, wait a second, David, his father. I thought Ahaz was his father. You're catching on here. David is referred to as the father of all of these kings. Kind of like great, 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 great grandfather. Okay. He did all according to all that David, his great, great, great grandfather had done. Verse 3. He is in the first year of he he in the first year of his reign in the first month opened the doors of the house of the Lord. The first year of his reign, this twenty-five-year-old who's now the king, taking over from Ahaz, his father, in the very first month, he says, "Wait a second, open those doors back up to the temple." Okay, open it back up. 
and he repaired them. Verse 4, And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together into the east street. So this is one of the other things that Ahaz did, was he pretty much just kicked all the priests out, along with the rest of the temple. And like I said, Ahaz's mind is, this stuff's not working. You guys aren't doing your job. I'm kicking you out. And Hezekiah brings them back in. And he brought in the priests, uh, verse 5, and said unto them, Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves, and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. Hezekiah is coming in and he's saying, We're going to make things right the way they should be. Starting with the Levites, who are the priests who are supposed to be in the temple doing the things that their great 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 grandfathers did. Okay, that was all set up by Jesus, by the Lord. He came in and said, I'm going to establish my work, my way with this group of people, and this is how I want it to be done. But then we find ourselves through these, these earthly kings far removed from that. And Hezekiah is trying to set things back in order. This is where he starts by repairing the temple. Look at chapter 30, verse 17. We're going to jump forward a little bit because as Hezekiah is going about reestablishing the laws, reestablishing the order, the correct and divine order of things, That's pretty much all that happens in the rest of 29 and then 30, where we're going to pick up right here. One of the things that he does, once he says, okay, we've got the priests in place, they're sanctified, we've got the people with the right mindset again, let's remember some of the things that God told us to do. For there were... This is uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 17. For there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. Therefore, the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passovers for everyone that was not clean. Okay, so the Levites, remember, that was one of the first things that Hezekiah said was, priests, cleanse yourselves because you got work to do. So they do that, and now... Things are starting to roll along again and going correctly. And so we've got people bringing sacrifices back to the temples. Does that sound familiar? This is what they did decades ago. Therefore, okay, so therefore the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passovers for everyone that was not clean to sanctify them unto the Lord. Verse 18, for a multitude of the people... Even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. Okay, pause here for a second. Because we are, we are generations removed from people who were doing the right thing the right way. Now we see kind of a turn after it's been evil for so long, they're starting to turn things back around correctly. Get things back in order. And knowing this, and Hezekiah being the king, who's obviously promoting righteousness to the land, the people of the land start to turn towards righteousness. Yes, that's right. 
Yes, he's good. He's doing the right thing, the holy thing. We want to be a part of that. Now, but remember, there's so many generations removed from the last time people were doing this correctly that, okay, we'll, we'll just go there for a minute. I'll give you a modern day example. If we had a guy come in off the street, none of us had ever seen him before. And he comes in here while we're singing, how great is our God? And he comes in here, he's raising his hands and feeling after the Lord. And man, it's all worship. Are we all going to be 100% okay with that if we're truthful? Or are some of us going to sit there and be like, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He hasn't, he hasn't proved himself. He hasn't cleansed himself. He hasn't gone through the correct things and done all. Well, this is where the children of Israel find themselves when Hezekiah is trying to turn towards righteousness. So they come and they, oh, Passover. I remember hearing about this from great granddaddy. And he said the Passover feast was some of the best food he ever had. So they just go right up to the table. Mm, yeah, that's great. We're part, we'll partake of that. But what it say, if you think about it, if you, especially if you go back and read and see all the things, you can't even partake of the Passover feast until you've done certain things. Cleansed yourself a certain manner. That somehow was not broadcast. Okay, so they get into the temple. They're partaking of the feast. It says, yet they did eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, the good Lord pardon everyone, verse 19, pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God. This is the king's heart for his people. Not just for the things of God, but for his people. He sees their heart is seeking God. They are after the right things. They desire righteousness. And so he's praying to God, pardon these people. That guy that didn't know the rituals he was supposed to go through, that just came here and started eating with his fingers. Pardon him. It says, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. Verse 20. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Healed the people. Think about that. He healed the people. This, this group of unclean unsanctified, hungry people that just want to eat because it's Passover. No, they have a heart for God, the right and true things of God. Hezekiah goes to the Lord on their behalf, and God listens and heals these people. He sets them correctly. Now, that's Hezekiah. The second king that we're talking about today. Hezekiah has a son. You probably guessed that. His name is Manasseh. Go ahead and jump. Second Chronicles chapter 33. So Hezekiah spent all this time. Preparing and repairing and sanctifying and praying forgiveness and establishing and getting the Passover 
he, he got it to such a degree that they could have a Passover feast, okay? That's kind of a, a symbolic statement of how far along he was able to bring his people with the priests in their place doing the right thing. That's the work that Hezekiah did. Now Manasseh takes over. Manasseh was how old? 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. That's a long time to be king, even in this day and age. Verse 2, was it good or bad? But he did that which was evil. Who was his dad? Hezekiah, the guy that we just talked about, doing things the right way, turning things back around. That was Manasseh's father. But it says Manasseh did that which was evil. In the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Keep reading. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. And he reared up altars for Balaam and made groves. Who does this sound like? It sounds like his granddad, doesn't it? Ahaz, the first one we started talking about. This is the stuff that he did. Reared up altars for Balaam and made groves and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Verse 4, it gets worse. Also he built altars in the house of the Lord, whereof the Lord had said in Jerusalem, shall my name be forever. Okay, that building of the altar in the house of the Lord, he wasn't supposed to do that. He didn't have permission or approval to go in and do that. That's kind of like, now I know we're kind of jumping back and forth between Old Testament thousands of years ago and then 2018. And how does, you know, we're not them, they're not us, they didn't do. I'll just give you this picture for, uh, for an example, okay? And I do this cautiously because I don't want to lose you or even, I don't want, I don't want you to think I'm uh, wrong about what I'm trying to say. But it would be like... Any one of us, I'm going to pick on Brother Joey Charles for a second. It would be like Brother Charles coming here into church, taking his seat, facing it this direction. Whenever, when everybody's praying and worshiping and singing, he's standing up and looking here. And we preach and we give an altar call. Everybody come to the front and pray. And he goes this way. Prays over there right where Sister already sitting. Oh, thank you, Jesus. But what is he doing? He's doing it wrong. He didn't, that's not the way that things are set up to be done here. So this is what it's like when it says Manasseh even went into the temple and built altars. Okay? He's, he's kind of lost his mind. He's, it's not the blueprint. It's not the plan. Now, the scripture does say, let all things be done decently and in order. That's an example of something being done out of order. He built altars in the house of the Lord, whereof the Lord had said in Jerusalem, shall my name be forever. Verse 5, and he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Verse 6, and he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now, that's the exact same thing that Ahaz did when it says he burnt. Also, he observed times and used enchantments, and used witchcraft, and dealt with a familiar spirit, and with wizards. This is Manasseh, okay? Don't forget who we're talking about. This is number three of the guys we're talking about. 
dealt with a familiar spirit and with wizards, and he wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord. Who was Manasseh's father again? Hezekiah. To provoke him to anger. Verse 7. And he set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and Solomon, his son, in this house, in this temple, and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before, all the tribes of Israel will I put my name forever. Manasseh is going and just putting up crazy whatever altars and images and idols that he wants to. What he's doing is he is having disregard for the word of God. God's trying to remind people. Do you remember how I chose this city? Do you remember how I chose this nation? These people. Think about, stop and think, what does the word Jerusalem even mean to you anymore? What is it? It does it, it was, it's supposed to be my holy city. The city of David. And here we've got another king with another crazy idea, thinking he's going to do something completely outside of the word and the will of God. Now, Manasseh had an encounter, though, unlike Ahaz. Because once he gets things established and, and crazy and turned and, you know, if I, if I imagine myself trying to live in the streets of Jerusalem that day and trying to walk holy, be righteous, and I don't even know how I could do it. If I was walking through town, I'd have to be like, oh, Lord, don't let me see anybody today. I don't want to look in that direction because there's an altar over there. I don't want to look in that way because there's an image and there's an idol. I just want to get to wherever I'm going. But see, this is, this is how bad, the, how, how much the king affected the people. When it says they built altars in every high place, that's like saying, okay, well, we're here in Selah. Wherever you drove from, you can't get back home without passing about 10 or 15 of these secular altars. That's the day that they lived. No, so Manasseh, though, while he's king, remember we mentioned Syria earlier. Another king comes into the nation of Judah while Manasseh is king, let's read that. Jump down to verse 10, chapter 33 and verse 10. And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Verse 11, wherefore the Lord, who? The Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. Hang on, we got God's king, the king of God's people, Israel, being taken captive into the neighboring nation. We know Syria is an evil nation, right? They're kind of the people that Ahaz and Manasseh and these guys are trying to model Judah afterwards. So he's taken captive to Babylon. Verse 12, And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God. And humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he was in affliction, he sought the God of his fathers. And we, 
if you're like me, you can, it's so easy to read one passage and think, why would God let something like that happen to that person or to that group of people, to that nation? Why, how, how could he do? Oh, it's, I can hear it in this 2018 society. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? How could he do that? How could a loving God? You know, you've heard that too. Well, could it be that he knows while we're in affliction? That's when we have the tendency to turn to the God of our fathers. When I'm led captive, when I'm taken from my comfort zone, when I've taken from my kingdom that I have established for myself, I've taken out of that place, led captive somewhere else, I start to think differently. I start to see things differently. All that I did and set up for myself and this life I was on and living this direction just caused me to be held captive. This is, the, this is all that it got me. I'm not even king of my own nation anymore. Look at verse 15. God delivered Manasseh out of that. He actually sent him back over his own nation after he humbled himself, after he repented. This is what Manasseh did once he got back. He took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord. And all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. That's what repentance looks like. Verse 16. And he repaired the altar of the Lord. Sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings. Commanded Judah to serve the Lord, God of Israel. One more verse. Verse 17. Nevertheless, the people did sacrifice. Watch this. It's very, very important. So Manasseh has gone through his own conversion, his own repentance. He's trying to set things back right. And now we're going to find ourselves in a very similar place as where we were with Hezekiah. Because the righteousness of the king turning back towards righteousness, it's kind of like it has this staggered effect on the people. Now, he can't just put his arms around the whole nation and say, okay, everybody, we're going to turn this way towards God. But he makes that that decision and that transformation in his own life and then we see the lingering effect of it turning the nation towards righteousness so just like as with hezekiah when people decided oh it's passover time let's go feast but they weren't sanctified manasseh decides we're going to we're only going to offer sacrifices to the one true god the god of our fathers now here they find themselves good let's do that that sounds great there's that one altar on my way home from work. I'll stop there. I'll make my sacrifice there. It says, nevertheless, the people did sacrifice still in the high places, yet unto the Lord, their God only. I can't help but think, what must the Lord feel? How, how must he feel about that? Because 
It's kind of like watching somebody do the right thing the wrong way. What do you mean by that? Well, we know what's right. The scripture says that for a man to, uh, for a man to know to do right and doeth it not to him, it's sin. Well, if I don't know, but I'm just going to try to do something because I think it's right, is that sin? I'm not answering that question. But so we've got people trying to offer good sacrifice on a bad altar. That's what it comes down to there. And this is Manasseh. His life ends while he's in in this state, this repented state. And he has a son. Time for him to take over. Thankfully here, the Lord didn't allow it to continue this kind of cycle of things. It's interesting. I'll just read it really quickly. His name's Ammon. Jump down to verse 21 where you are there. This is the son of Manasseh, Ammon. Ammon was 12... Two and twenty years when he began to reign and reigned over Jerusalem. How long? Everybody say, thank God. Just because I know where we're going with this. He only reigned for two years. Verse 22. But he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as did Manasseh, his father. For Ammon sacrificed unto the carved images which Manasseh, his father, had made. Okay, now hang on a second. Manasseh knew in his heart who was the one true God? And he decided, as a nation, we're only going to offer sacrifices to that one true God. But those sacrifices continued, as we said, on altars that were built incorrectly. And so, there, I don't know if Manasseh had, over, had uh, uh, missed those or just... And maybe he had a senior moment. I don't know. But so he allowed those altars to stay there long enough for people to start off offering sacrifices on them. And Ammon, in his two years, was worse than Manasseh was at his beginning. But, verse 23, humbled not himself before the Lord as Manasseh, his father, and had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more. I'll shorten this story for you. Because the people, not the son, but the people, had felt the turn towards righteousness from Manasseh. And so it says Ammon gets assassinated in the king, in the courthouse. The king's court, where he's at, he comes in and he gets assassinated. Ammon does, this evil guy. Oh, that must have been the priest. No, it wasn't the priest. Those were, those were just plain old assassins. Because we know that because what happens, the priests then kill the assassins. That's a different story for a different day. But I promise you, if you look at the story of David and how he felt about what you can do to a king, whether he's righteous or not. That's the priest's response to the assassination of Ammon. Now, there's one more son. One more, we're going to stop with him, I think. But Ammon, 20, in his 20s when he reigned, and he had this son. Jump down to, to chapter 34. Ammon's son. 
Josiah. He was eight years old when he began to reign. Really what that means is he was eight years old when his father was assassinated and he was crowned the next king. Eight years old. He reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years. I don't have time to go through all that Josiah did, but I do want to give you just a few highlights. Read verse 2. What kind of king was Josiah after Ahaz, the bad granddad, and then Hezekiah, the good granddad, and then Manasseh, the bad granddad, and then he got good, and then Amon, the bad dad? What kind of king was Josiah? He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. How old was he? He was eight years old. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of David, his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. Verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, okay, we got to do a little bit of math. 16. When he was 16, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David, his father, and in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places. You catch that. He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places. Those places where great-granddad built those altars and left them. He purged Judah and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. Verse 4. And they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence and the images that were on the high that were on high above them. He cut down in the groves and he carved and the carved images and the molten images. He broke them in pieces and made dust of them and strode it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. Verse 5. And he burnt the bones of the priests upon their altars. And cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. I really want to, I want to, this is the last thing I'm trying to point out about Josiah. Look down to verse 14. Because as he goes and he says, okay, we're going to open this temple back up. We're going to do things right. We're going to, we're going to restore the nation to righteousness. He discovers something. When they brought out the money that was brought into the house of God, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Verse 19. I'm going to to do a little bit of jumping here for for the sake of time. It came to pass when the king, this is Josiah, heard the words of the law that he rent his clothes Remember, Josiah was eight years old when he took over as king. An eight-year-old, I mean, I've got a son that's nine. I, I, I really struggle with the fact that God could put an eight-year-old in the king, as king. But if you stop and think about the fact that, how much worse could it have gotten? God knew the heart of the child. And he knew, okay, this, this child may not know much about righteousness and establishing kingdoms and what the rituals of the temple are but this heart of this child knows right from wrong good at eight years old at least he can start to hear things and think 
wait a second, that doesn't sound right. That's, something's wrong. And it says eight years later at 16, he starts to serve God, his fa- the, the God of his fathers. Now, a little bit later on in his life, in his young adulthood, there's this discovery made in the temple. Now, I don't doubt that this actually took place because we know that they had a Passover when Hezekiah was king. Right? That was, that was the point. He got them so turned around that they could at least have a Passover. So the priests were in place. They were doing their thing. And then Manasseh comes along. So I don't doubt that it was somewhere in this time in this reign of Manasseh in his early years when he's tearing apart everything and rebuilding stuff that doesn't belong. Somewhere in that desecrating of the temple, this book gets lost. And we said that Manasseh was a king for 55 years. Okay? So this is... Another generation removed, and this book of the law gets found. It's read to King Josiah. He says he hears it, and he rends his clothes. That's a sign of how distraught he was at hearing God's law and then comparing it to his day. Here's what God said. Here's what God wants. We're so far over here. He rent his clothes. Verse 21. This is what his response was. This is Josiah speaking. Go inquire of the Lord for me and for them that are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us. Because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. Josiah's response was, God's mad at me because my fathers didn't keep his commandments. To do after all that is written in this book. Jump down to verse 33. I'm just trying to hit the highlights for you. Josiah took away all the abominations out of the countries that pertained to the children of Israel and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve the Lord, their God. And all his days, they departed not from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. A few months ago, I was actually speaking over in Puyallup, and I started talking about altars. I'd never studied, preached, taught, really even listened to much about altars. What is that? What, what, what do they signify? What's the point of this? And we know that Cain and Abel offered sacrifices, right? But we don't see much instruction on altars until... Noah, it says Noah came off the ark. Get this picture. Noah comes off the ark. The land is clean, pure. There's nothing left from any former person, any former sinner. It's just a restart. It's like when you restart your computer. Oh, that's good. Nothing, no programs running. Oh, it's good. So he gets off the the ark And 
he builds, it, it doesn't say God told Noah to build an altar. It says Noah built the altar of his own accord using stone, using earth. And God, remember, it says the smell was a sweet-smelling savor to God. And he's, when it, this is what it says. When he smelled the sacrifice... God said, never again will I destroy man off the face of the earth. Because this man has found a way to please me. He's found a way to worship me in such a way that I'm, I'm never going to destroy man again. Now, the problem is we go all the way from that, from Noah building an altar out of a pure desire to worship and thank God to men like this, these kings and, and, and the whole the whole day and age around them. It's not just Israel. Remember, Israel's copying other nations, but it bleeds over into their nation to such a degree that they would make altars in the presence of the Lord, in the temple, in the house of God. They would make an altar to sacrifice and make sacrifices to another God. And then I start to think, okay, there's something significant about building an altar. What kind of altar I make and and what I allow to be put on that altar in my life. Because God ordained, remember when Moses was up in the mountain? God is giving Moses instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Okay, we're, this is how far back we're rewinding. How to build the tabernacle. And he says, an altar of earth you shall make me. And you shall not lift one tool. You shall not lift one tool upon the stone that is used for the altar. Why not? I mean, I can make this thing look good. I, 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 I am a master craftsman. Give me a chisel. Give me a hammer. And Lord, I will build you the prettiest altar you've ever seen. Nope. I don't want it that way. That's not the altar that I want. That's not what I deserve. But yeah, look, watch how cool it is when I, when I just chisel a little smiley face. Nope. Nothing. In fact, he says, if one tool is used on that altar, the altar is desecrated. It is no longer pure. We, we tend to focus so much when we talk about altars and sacrifices. We focus so much about what's on top of the altar. What are we, what are we sacrificing? Who are we sacrificing? But what God's saying today is, before you even get there, before you even start to think about that, consider how the altar is built in your life. Consider what goes into building, what things are established in your life that will determine the sacrifice that even gets made. It's got to be pure. It's got to be holy. Why don't you stand with me? I'm coming to a close.
I feel like the Lord's wanting us to examine our lives today and look for any impurity, even if it's just something that, I, that, that, that is my own work, my own doing. Be, because just like those kings, they make one decision and then they make another decision. And before you know it, a whole nation is going one direction or another direction. We need to pray. Let's talk to the Lord. Jesus, in your name, this altar is open if you want to come and pray in the front. Or I encourage you to pray wherever you find to pray. Jesus, God, I want to live a pure life right now. God, I want the altars of my life to be pure and established upon your truth, upon your word. Jesus, I believe, God, that you are the true and living God. You are the one true king. Jesus, I thank you, God, for the work that you're doing in my life. God, I thank you for the work that you're doing in my heart. Jesus, I'm thankful for your grace that you've given me and your mercy that you've afforded to me. Jesus, help me to be honest in my examination before you. Help me to be honest, Lord Jesus, in my examination of myself. Jesus, in the things that are pure and the things that are holy. In the name of Jesus, I desire to be holy before you. I desire to be one with you, Father. I want to be clean. I want to be pure, Lord Jesus. Cleanse me, O oh God. Cause your word to shine and illuminate in my heart and my life. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Oh God, I need you. Oh God, I need you. Come on, church, let's talk to the Lord. Be honest with the Lord right now. Jesus, search my life. Examine my life, Lord God. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. I surrender all to you. Everything I give to you. Withholding nothing, withholding nothing, I surrender all to you. Everything I give to you, withholding nothing, withholding nothing.
give you all of me withholding nothing I give you all of me I give you all of me I give you all of me withholding nothing I surrender all to you everything I give to you withholding nothing God withholding nothing I surrender all to you everything I give to you withholding nothing withholding nothing Brother Jeremiah, if you can put on the screen. It's a book of First John. Chapter 1. Verse 8. The Lord woke me up with this scripture on my mind today. I did not plan or intend to read it, but I feel like I should. I'm not looking for any type of, re of a response from anybody. I just have to read this. These three verses. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say 
that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I really find it interesting that the temple was not destroyed by any one of those kings or any of the kings. The temple, the house of God, wasn't destroyed until another neighboring nation came and and overtook the entire nation and then they destroyed the temple. What these what was these kings chose to allow the house of God to remain. Chose to allow the the, the they didn't kill any priests. They didn't do anything like that. They they just left it and said that's all well and good. That's that's fine that God wanted to do that with somebody else. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to go this way. And in doing so, really what they did was disregard the things of God. I guarantee you if you asked any one of those kings Who's your, who's, what lineage are you a part of? Who are you from? What's your heritage? They would proudly say, I am a son of David. King David is who I am. Temple's still there to prove it. The temple that his son Solomon built, also my great-grandfather. And they, it, it's, it's a measure of pride in them to say, I can cling to that. I can hold to that and profess that, but my life doesn't reflect it. No, I'm over here offering whatever. But that's no, that's that's who I am in my my background. That's my history. I'm proud of that. We're not going to destroy that. If they say they have no sin, They make God the liar. That's serious. They're not. That's not just them lying. And oh, I'm good. No, I'm I'm fine. They're they're making the word of God untruthful to them. Jesus, God, we come before you right now in all honesty and all openness. Jesus, God, your word says if we confess that we have sinned that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. God, and I'm thankful for the time that you're giving us right now to repent. I'm thankful for this opportunity, Jesus, you're giving us to confess our sin. Jesus, your word is true. Jesus, you are the King, you are the Lord, and you've given us this chance today, God, to seek you that you may be found. In the name of Jesus, I want your truth in my life, God, above anything else. God, I need the presence of your spirit in my life more than anything else. Jesus, cast me not from your presence. Jesus, take not your Holy Spirit from me.
In the name of Jesus, I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. Without you, I can do nothing, Jesus. Lord, let your peace prevail in our lives. Jesus, let your truth prevail in our lives. Every area of my life, God, that's missing your presence, your spirit, Jesus, I call on it right now, God. I seek it right now. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, we heard Wednesday night about righteousness and the gift of righteousness. Some of us, we need to receive it again right now. The gift of righteousness that the Lord's providing and offering today. Jesus, I thank you, God, for making the way of righteousness for me. Thank you, Lord, for providing a gift of righteousness to me. God, my own self is unrighteous. My flesh, God, is all unrighteous. But I thank you for your righteousness, Father. I thank you for it, and I receive it today, God. I receive it, Jesus. I seek your kingdom and your righteousness right now. Let it be applied to my life. In the name of Jesus, I thank you, God. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and dismiss you. I encourage you to greet one another before you leave. Welcome each other. And you all heard the same word that I did. So let's apply it in Jesus' name. Amen.